Hello and welcome to the podcast. What is the future of education? Your host today will be Elizabeth Cook, who is a senior analyst of strategy and performance at Edith Cowan University in Australia. She is also a postgraduate researcher on the program Higher Education Research, Evaluation and Enhancement with Lancaster University. Her PhD is developing a relational employability approach for universities. Today, we're talking with Professor Ching Han Sen from Lancaster University. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Can you please introduce yourself and also describe what you do in your work? I am a professor of China and International Studies at Lancaster University and also director of its Confucius Institute. Uh, I have written a few books about China, looking into China's domestic politics and international politics. My recent book is AI with Chinese Characteristics, National Strategy, Security and Authoritarian Governance. So my research is trying to understand about the rise of China and its implications for the existing global order. And in this recent book on artificial intelligence, I'm trying to understand about how artificial intelligence as an emerging technology has been shaping the great power politics and also being shaped by the great power politics and also uh, with a focus on the Chinese approach towards this AI development uh, because this approach is very different from the European approach and the US approach. And if you look uh, across the globe, you'll find that all major countries now in the world have launched their own national strategy towards AI. And the AI now is not only a, a technological matter. Advancement of AI is about national competitiveness and has become a more and more increasingly described as a matter of national security. So we have seen a very interesting development of how um, this competition in AI has been upgraded into a technological competition and then evolved into a geopolitical competition or even ideological competition into what kind of values should we put into AI uh, when we design it. And in the China case, for example, China has launched its global ambition to become an AI superpower by 2030. At the same time, the US national strategy on AI is trying to ensure American supremacy in leading the AI and trying to avoid the Chinese takeover. So we have seen very interesting kind of uh, technological competition between China and the United States and has led to a lot of real world kind of events. And also there is a nowadays there is a pattern of weaponization of AI, of developing AI in to the military industry, for example, uh, autonomous weapons. This has led to a series of ethical questions, and we are basically waiting for, uh, or have already seen a global AI race among the great powers. So that part of the research, what I'm looking into, trying to understand how this technology has shaped uh, the great power politics, has changed our society. Um, so that's my research. At the same time, in my managerial role at Lancaster University, I'm director of the Confucius Institute at the at the same time, academic director of China engagement. So what we do here is to promote cultural and language exchange between the UK and Great Britain. We are trying to provide the kind of language skills and intercultural skills to the students uh, who study in our institute and develop global citizens who have advanced understanding about China. That's fascinating and really important work, particularly the connections between AI and the geopolitical landscape today. You talked about how the Chinese approach to AI is different from the US approach. Can you elaborate on that difference, please? 
Well, I think that difference has been in my latest book. I talk about how this Chinese approach to the AI has been embedded into its political and social environment. So, if you look at the wider picture of how Chinese approach AI and how American approach AI and how European approach AI, you will find some very interesting difference here. So,、uh, for example, in the European approach, the European approach is very much of ethic-oriented or consumer rights-oriented approach, in which it Always want to prioritize the privacy or the consumer rights and avoid the negative impact of AI in privacy. And this clear example of the, of that is the GDPR、uh, in Europe, which is trying to、uh, protect about data and and regulate AI from the very beginning. And this has led to a, a lot of complaints from、uh, AI companies in based in Europe, saying, "Look at Chinese, look at American. They don't have so many regulations. That's why we were lack we are lack behind because of too." Regulations, and if you look at the U.S. approach, then you will find there are much less constraints. At the same time, there are considerable amount of fundings being used to develop、uh, artificial intelligence technology in the United States, and that, that has been something securing the the leadership of the U.S. in AI. And the Chinese example is different from European one and different from the U.S. one. The Chinese example is more state oriented because the mo- the financial incentive for China to replace Labors by AI is much less than that of Europe and the US. I mean, the reason for that is is obvious because、uh, the human labor in the US and、uh, Europe are a lot more expensive than that in China. So, for the private sector, the financial incentive of of replacing human labor are much less. But it was more of a state-driven, state-oriented kind of approach, talking about the future,、uh, how the future look like, how we how can we secure the national competitiveness of China, and this state-oriented. Approach has become something shaping、uh, Chinese AI. At the same time, I think because of this strategic thinking, securing national competitiveness, the Chinese approach to AI has much less regulate regulated than that in the U.S. or in Europe, and don't really have much of those regulations there. And you see the rapid development of artificial intelligence, for example, facial recognition technology in China. If you now go to China, go to the airport, go to even go to Spain, Market, you can use your face to pay、uh, because the payment machine will have an option that you use your face to pay. The face will recognize who are you and charge you from、uh, the money in your account. And even when you enter your residential buildings,、uh, you there is facial recognition.、Uh, there will identify where you are, who you are. And you cannot see those kind of patterns in Europe or US. In Europe, for example, and I think the EU even considered a black ban of facial recognition technology. In the US, you got. Uh, a lot of American leading tech giants refuse to work with American police to、um, regarding their facial recognition technology. So、uh, those three,、uh, Europe and U.S. and China, have very different patterns of using、uh, AI and developing AI in their own ways.、Mm. Well, I think that's a that's a very interesting phenomenon here.、Um, if you you can say that the European country in general, Western country in general,、uh, there are a very high level of social awareness and. That has led to a phenomenon. People are very critical of the government and being vigilant to any scheme implemented by the government in the AI area. They are worried about the invasion 
of that 210 privacy. But in China, it's a fundamental different debate. People view that uh, technology development is a very positive thing. It's something that can improve their living standards. And also in China, there is a lack of social trust. So they do believe that those civilian schemes provided by AI or those technology are there to uh, solve something that cannot be solved without it. So the debate was very different. And, and But in the recent years, I think there are multiple incidents of data leak, of uh, privacy issue. So more and more discussion on how this technology has now affected or provided negative consequences in China. But much of that discussion is about how we can regulate non-state actors, for example, Alibaba, Tencent, uh, or Jindong. Um, very few discussions about how are we going to regulate state actor. And this is very different from Europe, for example. The GDPR focus on both non-state actor and state actor. And in Australia, debate you mentioned, obviously, uh, it was being cautious about the government as well. But that kind of debate is not really there in China. And the perception about technology is also very different. This is so interesting. Thank you. I know that here in Australia, where I live and work, we're not so open to sharing data. We're worried about data protection and data privacy and using AI is a bit scary to us. So how can your work help to inform the future of education? Well, I think there are two aspects of it. One is about we now live in a very different world. Uh, you can see that the power has now been shifted from the west to the east, from the north to the south. And China lies right in the center of this uh, global power transition. And the rise of China has implications on a lot of issues, including the higher education sector. I think the rise of not only China, but also global south make it more and more important for our future students to become a global citizen, to understand not only Europe, but also a wider world, uh, especially non-Western world. They need to have sufficient intercultural skill and language skill to understand the wider picture. So Europe is only a small part of the world. There is a wider world there, and that is rising, which is a non-Western power. Places like China, India, South Africa, Brazil, I think they now have more and more influence and hold more and more seats and has been changing the world in a way that we have never seen before. Uh, examples of that, you can say the rise of Asian universities in term, in global rankings, the kind of knowledge they produced, the kind of research power they have. I think all ha has been changing, changing things. And at the same time, you have seen that uh, uh, the number of Chinese students, the number of Indian students study in Australia, Canadian, American, uh, and the British universities is something you have never seen before. It was because of the uh, rising of those China and India, and that has been leading this phenomenon. And they has become a, a more and more a critical part of the higher education sector in the West. So now in most of universities are heavily relying on international students, and most of them come from China and India. And a significant reduction of their student number is going to have a significant impact on the financial sustainability of this university. That is a debate in the UK. I'm sure it's a debate in Australia as well, for example. Yes. There's so many great things about having international students study onshore. It creates cultural atmosphere. It's good for the university and it's good for the students who are domestic students and also the international students. So it is very important. 
Yeah, they provide a diversity across the campus and really uh, gave the home students opportunity to interact uh, with people from a different linguistical, different cultural backgrounds. And that is something really amazing. And I think that's not something that all country can uh, have. So the kind of benefit they really bring in, the different perspective, different cultural skills, different language skills they bring in are really something we should cherish. But very unfortunately, I think the debate in different kind of countries countries about international students uh, has become very negative. For example, in the UK, the Home Secretary talking about international students in the framework of migration, how we can reduce the migration, and this was not very um, new. I, I don't think that shows nuanced understanding of the contribution that international students has been made to the British society. Not only financial contribution, but cultural contribution and other kind of things they have brought it to the society. Yeah. Yeah, with COVID, we actually, like many countries, closed our borders. and But our government also sent a very negative message to international students and didn't really provide much support. That negative narrative has now since changed. And, and we've also had a government change as well, which has also helped. But we have been working really hard in Australia to build back the relationship with international students. And international students were talked about as being cash cows. And the need for diversification has become more central when there's dialogue between students from different backgrounds it just makes sense really important to broaden the world of education so that students can get the most realistic experience they can while they're studying at university yeah yeah i find that often very helpful in my courses for example uh, on world china in the world I, I often find it's very beneficial to have students from different perspectives different regions talk about and debate those issues for example on china's foreign policy um i, I find the most fascinating is when i have japanese students Korean students, Indian students, and European students, American students came here with very different perspective on China, and they debate with each other, and that's something that they all learn from each other. They don't really have to learn from me, but they learn from um, other students, and that's something really amazing, and it's something that really can only be done by this diversity of international student population. And if you, I think you are absolutely right that uh, um, many international students have been viewed as a cash cow, but I think that picture has now gradually been changing and the university who haven't really changed themselves will only be left behind. When you see the rise of Asian uh, universities, more and more um, the international students will choose to study in those universities instead of going travel all the way to Europe or Australia or the US for study. And also the pandemic has reduced international mobility. So I think we are going to see a more and more competitive market towards the international students. And what really you can, I mean, the message here for all the universities Universities in Australia, Great Britain, and the US is what do you offer to attract them to come to your country to study? In the past, you can say 10, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, for Chinese students, Western education qualification or degree in a, uh, in a British university will be a golden ticket to find a job. Now it's no longer the case. Um, I, it's very different now. So, what students really want is the enhanced learning experience. So it's more than a degree, but a full experience of uh, a full taste of living in another country and learning in another environment is something valuable for their future and also a memorable life experience. 
And if we continue to view it from a cash cow perspective, you cannot provide that kind of nuanced service. And eventually, then you will have to lose out in this competitive markets. So I think that's why a lot of universities are now suffering in the pandemic time. They were hoping that now when China uh, fundamentally uh, get away from zero COVID, everything will be the same and go back to pre-pandemic times. I don't think that's the case. I think what is happening is there's a new normal has already been created. There is no nothing to go back to. It's not nothing to return to. You have to live in this new reality that what China students want are different and they ask more. And the question here is whether you can provide it. If you cannot, your, your competitor is going to do that. Then how are you going to uh, um, keep your student number? Yes. That's right. Maybe there'll also be more students doing part of their degree in their home country and then having a bit of an offshore experience throughout their degree in another country, a more mobilized curriculum, having a year of exchange with another university to broaden their experience through that mobilization. Do you think that will happen more in the future? That's uh, the transnational TNE, which uh, is idea meaning transnational education uh, idea is meaning about. Well, I think in Lancaster University, we are are very good at transnational education. We have our campuses uh, in China, in Malaysia, in Leipzig, in Ghana, and more recently we have uh, some new initiatives in Indonesia. So the idea is that we will make sure our students have the international mobility they want to have. If they, for example, when they're in the UK, they want to study in another country and they can have lots of options so they can really become the global citizen. At the same time, we want to provide the quality British education to the students in the global south such as China and Malaysia they don't really have to travel to the UK to get that education uh, but they can have that and enjoy that in their their home countries that's the idea and I think that TNE has become more and more popular nowadays yes and I think because of the pandemic, a lot of students have been stuck on shore in a certain country studying and they've been separated from their families. And I think that might have changed people's attitudes towards studying offshore. So in those instances, the TNE experiences can be really useful. So students can get a taste of being offshore studying. Actually, I'm doing my PhD with Lancaster and I'm studying at home in, in Australia. But I actually feel like I'm sometimes in UK. I've been able to develop relationships with so many people. I am so immersed in the experience that I don't feel like I'm very far away at all. It's been a super rich experience for me. And so that kind of experience also can be authentic. Well, it was in my case anyway. Maybe it's because I've got great imagination. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the case in China that uh, people tend to be very cautious about the COVID. So really sending and also mending of the children uh, in this generation are, are the single, uh, single child. So sending them... Uh, so far, we're in another country, and with so many uncertainties in the in the pandemic time, is a big decision. So many of them would would prefer them to stay in China and 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 stay in our uh, China campus. So which make it uh, a lot more a lot more sense. Mm. Oh, I also think that you know if students aren't going over to other countries for their education, then they can help to support the older generations with those technologies in their home countries. So, you know, the home country benefits being home. They can help their grandparents to use the newer technologies. So I guess that's another aspect. Yeah, and I also guess you you don't want all the future leaders to go and stay in another country and live there and not return to their home country so that they can become the next generation of leaders, like the brain drain phenomenon. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess there's 
other reasons that are focused more on the state than the actual the student or the, the family. Do you have any examples of your work that raise important questions or may contribute to our thoughts and actions regarding education futures? Well, I think in addition to what we just talked about, I think the AI part, the technology part is also very important in how the way it might have changed our future or our think of the future. What are the important skills? To me, I think what is important is we are now really moving towards the age of AI. And uh, that would mean that it is going to need a, a lot of social economic inequality. For those who have the relevant computing skills, Skills, and for those who do not have those computing skills, the gap is going to become wider and wider. So in the future, you can see a lot of jobs they will require quite advanced computing skills, and a lot of basic jobs might be replaced uh, very soon by AI. And I think uh, recent uh, anticipation showing that uh, one third of uh, the Chinese, for example, in China, one third of the of the Chinese people need to change their job uh, within eight years time by 2030. And some basic jobs like, for example,、uh, driving a Uber. Probably we don't need so many drivers. We can we have already seen the autonomous, autonomous self-driving cars.、Uh, in translation area,、uh, I think now、uh, a lot of translation equipments can do very good translation. We don't need so many translators.、Uh, even in banking industry, we have seen that、uh, some of the AI have been very good in doing financial anal-、uh, analysis. So do we need so many financial analysts? And、uh, in Uh, a lot of it, probably pretty much all the area you mentioned about. I think AI is going to fundamentally change it and change the way we approach our job, we view our job, we do our job. So how we can really prepare the future generation for that? And this would some of the、uh, early discussion think that all of the students now in the future need to learn some basic codings. And this is why in China, I, I think probably some other places they have like summer camp for primary school kids to learn AI or coding. Yeah,、uh, that might be a kind of market hype or exaggeration of or, or trying to make advantage of this wave to make some money. But I think that do make a point is to put that early awareness of this、um, of the fact that we are moving towards digital future. Yeah, what small steps should we take now to transform higher education and prepare for the future? So into that digital future, what we need to do is really to make sure the kids have the have the essential、uh, digital skills they need, and this is different than before. I mean, imagining about fifty years ago, not everybody need a computing skills, right? Fifteen years ago, you don't need to learn how to do apps, you don't need to do this and that. But now,、uh, you can you imagine live without computer, live out with a phone? So I think fifty years later will be the same for the AI. And in China, we have already seen that how technology. Has, has made uh, uh, under or less privileged people suffered. For example, in China now with the zero COVID, everywhere you go, you have to show your health code. And for a lot of older people, they don't even know how to use a smartphone. How can they show their health code? Or for those who do not really have those skills or no university education and no education at all, it's very difficult for them to do that. And they have been significantly worse off in the pandemic time. And in China, this is still the case now. Their mobility has been significantly restricted. They cannot go anywhere as they used to. So I think this is really creating a lots of problems. And in the future, I think it's more and more obvious with the AI skill or without the AI skill, it's going to make a fundamental difference. And the future jobs will be all. 
also father um, in equal, you can say. If for a lot of jobs require high skills, it's going to be paid a lot of money. I think we have already seen that, right? If you now work in an AI company or uh, a computing company, or if you work in Google, all those kind of places, you can get a very good uh, salary. Uh, but, for, but for other basic jobs, then you don't have much of a salary. So father and father kind of division. And this needs to, we need to be very early on, think about it strategically, uh, not only for, for our own children, like where, what do you want them to become, what kind of position you want them to become, but also for the students. This need to change a lot of things, the way we design our subjects or the kind of skill we want to provide to our students and the way we think about education in the future. And uh, I think another point I want to make about the transnational education, you are you mentioning about uh, a lot of parents do not want, want the children to go back uh, to study uh, in other places, want to stay in their home country. I think that is not only about safety issue, but also about climate change. I think we just saw the COP27 and now with the climate emergency being claimed, I think everybody have a social responsibility to ensure that what or to reflect what kind of role you have in climate change. And we all know that flights, especially international flights, produce a lot of carbon. And the transnational education, I think uh, the good thing about it is we can cut those short-term travels. At the same time, when you go to a country to study for a long period of time, that would be good for the environment. So the point here is to make more longer-term states and those kind of transnational education. You don't have to fly all the way around from China to the UK to study. Instead, you can just stay in China to study study to, to save that carbon, to save that travel, save those energy, which will be good for the climate and will be good for our sustainability. So I think all of those are very critical for the way we think about the future to bring that climate change and sustainability angle into our understanding of the future education. Absolutely. Yeah. And you don't need to be traveling to be collaborating effectively. I think the pandemic has taught us that. And also teaching students how to learn. That's really important. Actually, I really think it's too late to be doing all of this at university. We should be doing this at primary school and, you know, actually begin even in preschool to educate students how to use technologies effectively. Yeah, yeah. If you had the power to do so, what would you envisage or create to transform the future of higher education? Well, I think there are two things. One is I will further promote internationalization and uh, uh, focus on global south. We need to understand about the rising powers, uh, places like India, places like China, understand their language, understand society, uh, their economy, and uh, all the kind of opportunity offered by the rising economy of those uh, emerging powers. I think that's very important for, to make sure our students are in a competitive place. So for example, uh, I think well, China is now second largest world economy, right? And uh, um, if you learn some basic Chinese, that will put you in a very strong position. Of course, a basic understanding of Chinese culture will be very crucial. I think the next superpower, the next um, rising power people talk a lot about is about India. Then how much we know about India and India's opportunity, where are the, the, the area for growth and how international campaign can really uh, do business with India. I think all those kind of questions requires in-depth knowledge regarding the country and at this stage i think we don't have that a lot of education still are very much european centric kind of education focus on europe which are important but i think we should also look for opportunity else, uh, 
um, where. And if we really want to develop global citizens, this would mean that they need to understand the wider part of the world beyond Europe, beyond the United States. Then they should look into global south countries like China, countries like India, countries like Brazil, countries like uh, South Africa. I think those are very, very crucial things. Uh, so this internationalization is very important and it's internationalization beyond Europeanization. That's what I would I would call it. At the same time, um, I think uh, regarding the technology, technology side, I would uh, try to develop a more interdisciplinary approach to AI embedded about technology into all subjects, uh, not only science and technology, but all subjects like language, like education, social knowledge, politics, philosophy, religion, all subjects to where the awareness of the importance of technology uh, and awareness of AI how has been changing our society and how this is crucial for the future employment at a very early stage. And uh, um, I will encourage students probably to learn coding, learn some basic computing skills at a very early stage. I think that's going to be very important. I mean, I don't have those skills, uh, but uh, I think 20 years later, 30 years later, they do need those skills. It's like we need the skill to use our smartphone. We need the skills to use a computer, right? So I think that's that's very crucial. I think back back in my time, um, I think you do not learn how to use a computer. Then you are going to be a lot, lot less worse off. The kind of job you are going to find will be much worse off. So I think they need to learn about those basic skills at a very early stage. So, so yeah, if I have the power, I will further promote internationalization towards global south, understand that, and also embed it as a, as a, as a education about technology in all subjects. What is your final education futures message for our listeners today? I think that future is already right in front of us. It's not something that's going to happen three years later, five years later. doesn't really matter whether you learn language or in business or in science technology. You all have to learn that digital skills now. In order to access education, you should access to. And in China, the zero COVID has been going on for three years. And uh, um, the students really, the in-person teaching time has been reduced significantly. So if you don't really have those digital skills, don't understand technology, then you are wasting your time. So so I think it's less about subjects, more about this general trends and the importance of digitalization while moving towards the future of AI. And, uh, and in all subjects, I think there is an angle for AI as well, right? In language, for example, AI has been changing the way we understand language in many ways, in translation and in um, the way in linguistics, I think everything. There is always something to talk about. We should understand about the impact of those emerging technology in that subject. Ultimately, we have to be pushed by the technology with a computer. We are being pushed by the technology and towards where we are. So I think, like it or not, that future will be there. And how we can cope with it? I think the cope with it is to make incremental steps um, towards that. And the important thing for today is to understand and appreciate the importance of these technological changes. Understand that it's going to transform our society one way or another. Like it or not, it's going to be there. So it's better for you to be psychologically ready for it and embrace some of the early kind of development. So that will keep the competitiveness of our students. And countries like China, countries like India is going to become more and more important. And in those ways, I think that is going to have implication uh, in our education, in the way we do our education, in the way who we study with, what kind of students are we going to educate, what kind of research, who are we going to collaborate with. And I think all of those are important. 
And the second is about, the, as I mentioned earlier, is about moving towards the age of AI and how we can prepare our children to be ready for this transition. I think a lot of countries are, have already made a lot of preparation. In China, for example, I think the awareness of AI has been, been quite high. And a lot, even primary school, they are talking about AI in many ways. I think it's a national mobilization of that. And I think for the Western education to keep their competitiveness, they really should be thinking about how they can position themselves in the future. When you facing the competition around those rising powers in global south. The world is going to be very different, I think, in the next two or three decades. So will be our education. And uh, we should think creatively about how should we understand and educate our future generations. So I would encourage everybody to keep an open mind about technology, open mind about power shift uh, around the world. Yeah. This has been such an interesting discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, uh, Elizabeth. I enjoyed Thank it you. too. Thank you. Bye.